Hi guys and welcome to another episode of Radcast. Now I've said this before on the podcast that sometimes in radiology it can feel like you're reporting with a target on your back and you're just one miss away from getting sued and your career being over. Well today we have someone who will be able to tell us if that is actually the case as we're joined by Majid Hassan who's a medical malpractice lawyer with the firm Capsticks. So thank you for joining us Majid. Pleasure, good evening. Yeah, I always think Jamie's being a bit dramatic when it comes to this area, but um, maybe he's got it right and I'm not scared enough. Uh, so hopefully we can get a balanced assessment from you this evening, Majid. Um, and can you just give the listeners uh, a little bit of background about yourself? Yep, sure. So uh, pleasure to be with you today. Uh, my background is as a lawyer specialising in medical malpractice claims. I've been doing that for over 20 years now. I'm always uh, instructed by the hospitals or the insurers for the individual clinicians. These days you either act on the patient side or on the defendant side. I always do defendant work. Um, and my case portfolio covers a wide range of cases, really, everything ranging from high value obstetric claims to emergency medicine claims to cases associated with errors on reporting in radiology. So a real variety of things that you see in hospital. Um, and yeah, that's what I've been doing for many years. So delighted to try and share some of the learning from those cases with you. Brilliant. So just to clarify, are you one of the good guys or the bad guys? Who's, whose side are you on? Uh, I'm on your side. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> whether, I'm on the, whether I'm with the angels or not will depend on the view of those, you know, the lawyers on the other side say that I'm on the dark side, but you know, that's interpretation. depends on your perspective. But yes, I'm always advising and supporting you. And I think that's really important that a key part of our role as lawyers is not just to resolve a claim. And we want to resolve it for everyone, for the patients, for the clinicians involved, because litigation isn't really a very pleasant experience. Uh, you know, if you can get through your career without being involved in litigation, you're very lucky. I think these days we live in a more litigious culture and most people, the very best clinicians can still get sued. Um, and part of our role as defence lawyers is about taking the clinician through that journey, explaining to them what the process is, what their involvement in the process will be, what the outcomes are, etc., and really providing that reassurance uh, wherever we can. So why, why did you decide to go into medical malpractice law? That's a really good question because I found the contract and commercial law really boring at university. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, you know, I was I was at my old university recently at a careers fair and uh, someone asked me the very same question. And, and I said that it, I happened to be at my brother's house during university holiday and he's a medic, he's a emergency medicine consultant and in, I hadn't read there hadn't been anything in my law degree up to that point that really you know floated my boat that gave that spark and by chance I came across an article in the back of the BMJ on how consent and informed consent was so important in medical law and for me, that sort of twilight zone where medicine meets law was fascinating. And I went back to university with a renewed enthusiasm and did um, a dissertation in medical law. And as they say, the rest is, the rest is history. Hmm. So it's actually, it came from the medical side then as opposed to it. That's, that's interesting that it was, that's where the inspiration came from. 
Yeah, yeah, it did because I think, um, and again, I'm showing my age slightly, uh, in the 90s when I was at university, um, medical law and medical litigation wasn't the beast that it is at the moment. I mean, uh, you can't pick up a newspaper these days without seeing a headline about some compensation claim or some kind of medical legal issue. But in the 1990s, it was still a specialism in its infancy. And that's really where, you know, you were more likely to find something on the subject in a medical journal rather than in a legal journal. And that's where my enthusiasm started. And although I, I didn't go straight into medical law, I, I trained as a litigator on insurance claims generally. Um, after a few years, I subspecialized into medical litigation and then had a year away doing a master's degree in medical ethics. So slightly different to the litigation side, much more on the ethical principles. And, and yeah, that's why I've been lucky enough to be carried on doing for the last 20 years. So over that period, what are some of the notable cases you've been involved in? Gosh, that's, um, that's Too a many. tough question. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> the, the, all cases are very different. No two cases are the same. I mean, for a large proportion of my career, I dealt with uh, many very tragic, I mean, all cases are tragic. Someone has got harmed. Uh, some clinician is involved. We always talk about the second victim, which is uh, the clinician involved. No one goes to work in healthcare intending to make a mistake. So there is an impact on them as well. Obviously not as great as to the patient. Um, and so when I dealt with obstetric claims for a large part of my life, um, they were always very, very, very tragic, very sad where uh, a child was left brain damaged. But often it's very interesting medically to see whether it was the alleged failing in the care that resulted in the brain damage or whether there was something else. And, you know, the, the compensation in that case wouldn't then be appropriate. So mm. those cases are interesting, the emergency medicine cases, the radiology cases. I think the other thing that I've noticed as time has gone on is not only that the level of the awards increase, but also um, who's liable and where that liability rests has become more complicated. You know, we are operating now, or you are operating now in an arena where services are contracted and subcontracted out and the indemnity arrangements around those services has become ever more complex and unless it is clear and people keep the documentation as to who is liable for what um, it can be a very difficult area to try and navigate through so yeah i think i've seen many more contractual issues around liability um the range of cases we've been involved in has been vast as it, you know, you know, if you think of most special, I can't think of many specialisms that I can say we haven't done a case in everything from plastic surgery, obstetrics, neurosurgery, uh, even these days, you know, with very topical with the World Cup starting, we've advised those who work in elite medical sport, mm. uh, sorry, elite uh, elite sport on the medical side and the liabilities they face and the different challenges that they face, whether that's in football, cricket or any other sport. So, yeah, wow. really varied. Which specialty sort of faces the most litigation from your experience? Uh, that's, that's 
that's a good question. Um, the, the highest frequency of claims for any specialty uh, used to be orthopedics at one point um, until fair, fairly recently. Now that may be due to the number of orthopedic procedures that are undertaken. Um, a, a few years ago, that was surpassed by emergency medicine. Uh, there were more claims from emergency medicine than any other specialty. Um, and again, if one looks at the factors behind that and the reasons for it, there are many. Uh, you can't put your finger on one thing and say, oh, well, this is why emergency medicine or orthopedics, uh, you know, they keep getting it wrong. Yes, they have a lot of cases, um, but there can be a huge number of factors mm. resourcing um, patient volume, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, so they they tend to be the specialties with the most. I mean, obviously, we also deal with claims for Jeep general practice. Mm. Um, and until a couple of years ago, GPs were indemnified by their defense organizations. They have now gone into the fold with acute services under the NHS and the indemnity is under the NHS schemes. Um, for general practice. So there is a large volume of claims as well. So there are those specialties with high frequency and then there are those specialties with high severity and they won't be as common, but those are probably the cases that you see reported in the paper for the multi-million pound claims mm. that occur. Um, and those cases can be in the region of, you know, 20 or 30 million, etc. But they're high value claims, but they're certainly not as frequent as the case numbers that we see for um, other specialties. So, so thinking um, about errors in or mistakes in radiology, um, I mean, what what is the legal perspective on it? In, in radiology, we sort of make a distinction between um, discrepancies, which are uh, probably only noticeable in retrospect maybe when more information has come to light and sort of true bad errors um where you've missed something that you probably should have seen at the time and we sort of um, handle those very differently how how do how is it looked at in the legal profession uh, do you think we should have a do they think we should have a zero percent error rate uh i think it would be incredible incredibly difficult to have a zero percent error rate in anything i think the one of the most important things you realize doing our work is that error does happen uh, error, error happens in every specialty uh, mistakes happen in my specialty you know uh, believe it or not lawyers do make mistakes contrary to what they may tell you um but the big difference is when we make mistakes thankfully it is only in terms of often financial value and there is insurance for that but sadly when mistakes are made in a healthcare setting there is a patient involved at the end of it and that patient may have suffered harm but to understand why those mistakes happen and how it will be judged one has to i suppose start with um what defines a negligent error and without giving you a law lecture uh, there is very set case law on what is appropriate. And ultimately the test is whether the actions of, whether it's the individual radiologist or whichever other health professional in question we're talking about, whether that's fallen below the standard of care to be expected. 
so no responsible body of medical opinion, no responsible body of radiologists would report this scan in the way that it was reported. That's the first hurdle that has to be cleared. Then after that, it also has to be shown that that failure, that mistake caused or materially contributed to the injury, loss or damage which the patient alleges. Mm. So for a claim to succeed, all of those hurdles have to be satisfied. And often we will see cases where there has been a mistake, that it could have been a reporting mistake, etc. But ultimately, it hasn't been causative of any injury or harm, loss or damage that occurred, or that harm, loss or damage may have occurred in any event, irrespective of the mistake that's happened. So that's the context in which one has to assess any kind of mistake by a health professional. So, so and my understanding was that the errors used to be judged against a, a standard of kind of the average radiologist on an average day, but it sounds like that's not not really the case anymore. No, uh, I mean it's the the test is it's never. Um, I can understand how from the perspective of a clinician on the ground you would you would think that that you know it's not a particularly high standard it's not a very low standard all that has to be done and it's been the case since the 1960s when the case of Bolan was decided which set mm. the standard and what that case said is that you would judge by response what a responsible body of medical opinion would do in those circumstances now that body as long as that body of medical opinion has used a logical analysis to come to the conclusion that it has done, that's absolutely fine. But it doesn't matter whether that body of medical opinion is one person or whether it's 100 people. Mm. Obviously, the body of opinion that is 100 people, and if they're following national guidance, etc., etc., may carry more weight with the judge then the one person is saying, well, I go against everything else and I think it's okay. If there, I, I dealt, dealt with a case many years ago where the only expert who defended a particular ophthalmic procedure was an American. Uh, well, he, he had a practice in America and he said, well, this is what they would do. But actually it was the wrong standard. It didn't matter that he operated over here. All the guidance in the UK was not to do this particular procedure in that particular way. And so this expert, even though he felt he was still right doing it, probably wouldn't uh, stand up to scrutiny in court. So is this where expert witnesses come in? Because I know I, I know a few colleagues who do sort of medico-legal work um, in their sort of spare time. So is, is that where the sort of thing they'll be doing, assessing whether it is at an expected standard for someone of the profession? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's important to appreciate that ultimately it is those experts who guide us. The lawyers are really there to just, you know, we're not that clever. We're, we, we listen to what the experts say. Well, we should listen to what the experts say. Uh, we're, we're guided by the expert opinions. And the other thing which is really important to appreciate is that as an expert, your duty first and foremost is to the court and not to necessarily to, to give the opinion that you think your client wants to hear. So, 
you know, good experts will always give the opinion that they think is correct, is an independent expert opinion. They will be under scrutiny in the witness box mm. if the case proceeds. So the expert has to, you know, many a time, I would rather an expert said to me, Madge, this case cannot be defended for these reasons than they try to, you know, tell me what I think I want to hear. So thankfully for the last, you know, 20 years or so, um, we've seen progress in how experts operate in the court system and the independence of those experts and the need for their, when the rules around litigation were changed in the late 1990s, the role of experts was carefully considered and there were very defined rules about the duties experts owe mm. to the court. Surely if you have um, a, an expert who keeps telling you what you don't want to hear, you're going to stop going to them. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, possibly. But, you know, if they keep telling you what you don't want to hear and they're right, then okay, maybe yeah. you carry on going to them <laughs> if, they, if you think... You know, <laughs> this guy saved us a lot of unnecessary time and expense mm. by trying to defend something that we can't. I mean, the other point I, I would say is um, we don't just use what one expert, I'm sure people have their favorite experts may work with, but actually we have lots of different experts and often your favorite expert won't always be available. So in practice, what happens is that you tend over the course of your career to instruct many different experts and you know which ones are particularly good on paper, which ones are good in the witness box, which ones <laughs> will stand, fight their corner when it comes to expert meetings, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, you know, you, you build up relationships with experts, but I think the most important thing is that you understand and the expert understands that you're all really working as a team and we want that expert to give us their honest opinion because that's ultimately mm. their duty to the court and what they'll be pressed on. And we, we will share that opinion always with the clinician whose actions are being called into questions. And sometimes experts will change their mind because when they meet the clinician, the clinician may explain to them why they did a procedure in a particular way or give them some information that they haven't previously given as a result of points raised within the expert's report, and the expert may change their mind, and that's okay as well. Um, you can do that as an expert. Mm. It's, it's just about working with your team, whether you're on the claimant side or the defense side, to provide that information at the right time. And, and the last thing I would say on experts as well is that many experts, most experts I would say these days, um, act for both claimants and defendants, so it's not that you're one side or the other. As a solicitor, you are almost invariably either on the defence side or on the claimant side, but actually as an expert, you will do both sides. And that, again, is uh, an indication of your independence as an expert, that you accept instructions and mm. provide opinions on behalf of both sides. It's really interesting. It's a lot more involved than I thought uh, medical legal work was. I thought they just send you like a scan and say, would you have spotted this? But like actually meet, <laughs> meeting the defendants or claimants and sort of 
Selling their point of view. The yeah, cold. yeah, exactly. Getting grilled. Yeah, it, it is. Not, not every case. I mean, I think you look at the value of the individual case. Sometimes a case may not be worth that much, and you don't need to do any more than just review the scan, provide mm. a report, and, and that's probably sufficient. But actually, in some cases, um, in larger cases, in cases involving MDTs, where the radiology is one part of the overall case. There may be a complex neurosurgical issue. I've just done a case with a spinal issue, and we've got a spinal surgeon on board. We've got a radiologist on board. Uh, you know, you, you may have multiple experts of which the radiology is just part of it. So if we're, if we're talking about, about radiology errors, why is it that some end up in court and others don't? Um. Okay, so the first thing to say is that the majority of cases that are brought don't get to court. Um, I think, you know, something like 95% plus cases are resolved out of court, probably even less than 3%. I, I don't know the exact statistics mm. lately, but um, it's a very small percentage of cases that go to court. And if we right. look at radiology in the uh, part of the bigger pie. Radiology, uh, in my experience, is, again, relatively small compared to other specialties. But um, when one considers why some cases don't, don't get to court, first of all, a large number of cases will fall away at an early stage. So although a patient may think they've got a claim and they will go to their solicitor and the solicitor will request records, et cetera, et cetera. When that claimant's expert looks at the case, um, they may provide a report saying, actually, there is no case to answer here. Mm, okay. Right. Um, then uh, the expert may put forward a case and on behalf of the defense, we put forward a response to it. And that response may be enough for the claimant's expert to say, I can no longer back this case. Uh, and the claimant's solicitors and the insurers funding that case may well think in light of that expert opinion, they can't continue to fund the case or carry on acting. So a lot of cases will fall by the wayside. Then there's a proportion of cases where they aren't black and white. Um, it's not completely clear cut and the risks there are risks on both sides. And those cases are resolved on a risk basis uh, out of court. You know, it's because neither, litigation is a very expensive business. Mm. Um, no one takes it on lightly. It's a very emotional business and it's certainly not easy for the clinician or indeed the claimant who's involved. So no one really wants to go to court, N not even the lawyers, if I was honest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's quite nervous when you said, yeah, I think we should fight this case and you're sitting there watching your expert collapse in the witness box. <laughs> it can be quite nerve-wracking. So you've got to be really, really sure of your case before you decide you want to run with it. But actually, some cases have to be defended and those are the cases that get to court where you really think, look, we've got a solid expert as lawyers, we are only as good as the evidence that we have to work with. So we need a good witness. We need a good expert, experts 
explaining the case to us. To fight a case on liability issues alone, you need to have all of that evidence in place. But if that evidence is all set for you and you're confident with it and the other side you know, won't back down, then unfortunately, um, as a measure of last resort, and I would say it is a measure of last resort, cases can end up in litigation. Interesting. Um, how much um, preparation sort of goes into the, the bringing the case to court for you? Um, how much of the background sort of medical element of it do you need to understand and how deeply do you go into that? Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a great saying I, I read once where as lawyers, we deal with lots of different cases. Uh, I said earlier, we rely on the experts to guide us through the medicine and the opinion on what is or isn't negligence and we assess that expert how credible they are how strong their evidence is and what what could happen mm. um what the different options are but you know as lawyers we need to have a good understanding of anatomy and physiology and we develop islands of knowledge someone once wrote um in our field, we have little islands of knowledge based on the different cases we do. But, you know, ultimately it comes back to the fact that we're reliant on the expert mm. to tell us whether or not a particular treatment mm. was negligent or whether it was appropriate. And we, we're also part of the team if a case goes to court. Um, most solicitors won't do the advocacy. We rely on a barrister to put the case across to the judge in court. So that barrister would be, he or she would be part of our team along with the medical experts, along with the solicitor, and most importantly, the individual clinician involved. So it's very much a team effort. And actually we have conferences where we sit down, we go through the expert evidence, we go through the medical records that were made, we go through the, evidence of the clinician involved as to what they did, why they did it, how they did it. And all of that plays into our assessment on whether or not the case should proceed. And that small minority of cases that do go to trial, um, again, going back to the point I said at the beginning, as solicitors, our role is to ensure that we support clinicians in that trial process uh, so that they can give their evidence as easily and honestly as possible and we take the pressure off in that way when we're working in our sort of normal nine-to-five jobs um in our nhs jobs um we're covered by trust indemnity right so is it usually the actual clinician defending themselves or is it the trust defending the clinician on behalf of them um how does it work who who's behind the dock yeah so in your NHS practice, you are indeed covered under the NHS contract. So it's NHS resolution right. who provide what's called. So they're an NHS body whose task is to administer the claims brought against the NHS. And there is a scheme called the Clinical Negligence Scheme for Trust. And that is the scheme that provides the indemnity to all NHS staff working in the acute sector. Okay. Right. Uh, sometimes, again, going back to a point I mentioned earlier, sometimes third-party contractors, third-party radiologists, independent radiologists are brought in to report on 
scans undertaken in the NHS. And again, it's important to ensure before you enter that contract, where does the liability lie? Your, if you're acting there in that situation I've just described as a third party independent contractor, the chances are you won't be covered by Oof. NHS indemnity and you will need to ensure your own indemnity right. uh, is in place there or the company that you're working for has appropriate indemnity. But going back to your question, it is uh, the clinical negligence scheme for trust that would cover you in your NHS role, so, wherever you're working. So all of us will, we also pay for our own additional in, indemnity, whether that's M, MDU or MPS. What What's that for? Yeah, so that's, that's separate. Um, the NHS indemnity will cover you for any claim brought against you in your NHS practice. Um, it will also often cover you and, and the claim is brought against the hospital trust. This is a really important point. If you report on a scan and it's misreported in some way, that claim, when it is brought, you aren't named as the defendant in that claim. The defendant in, on the claim form will be the NHS trust involved uh, who you were working for. The big difference is if you're working independently and you're not doing an NHS role, you will be the named defendant. And in that situation, your private indemnity will cover you for that private work, providing, okay. of course, that you've told them that you're doing <laughs> that private work, which, believe it or not, I do sometimes see. And then it's a really... Oh, I can believe it, yeah. Or, well, uh, you know, um, as you know, indemnity is discretionary. And if uh, I've Ooh. seen situations where in that situation a, a defense organization could well say well look actually you never told us that you're doing x amount of private work and therefore we can't cover you so you have to be really careful that you are covered for the work that you are doing or intend mm. to do but the other thing as well is let's say for example uh i don't know you were suddenly caught on a speed camera or, or, or appeared in court on something that was unrelated to your clinical practice but you're thinking well this could affect my my job it could affect you know whether I still have a job and who supports me in that situation um, it may well be that you go to your defense organization for that support or if you were more, more commonly if you refer to your regulator, to the GMC, then in that situation, that is what your MDDUS, MDU or MPS cover is intended to uh, okay. provide. Hmm. Yeah, or, or I should add, I mean, I mentioned, sorry, Jamie, I mentioned inquests earlier. You know, it, occasionally we see situations where the individual clinician uh, requires their own representation at an inquest in some way because there may be an issue where the view of that clinician is contrary to the view of the trust. So the trust legal team would be conflicted in acting for both and therefore mm. it is the clinician right. okay, yeah. uh, who may go off and get their own representation via their MDO. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh... Another consultant colleague who's been practicing a lot longer than me, he said, uh, I, was, I was asking about the 
how how do you know um, what level of indemnity to to take out when you start doing work outside of the NHS? And his advice was to always over indemnify. He said, think of the value of work that you're going to do, and then just add like thirty percent to that, and you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, it's not worth asking if you don't do that, is it? Yeah, I mean there are. There, um, again, it's important to talk to your defence organisation or the insurance broker who's helping you getting this indemnity. Um, most indemnities tend to be for private work. Uh, certainly on the insurance side, can be five to ten million, depending on what exactly you're doing. Some of the MDOs, there may not be a limit, but you, you've got to really have that conversation and talk about it and say, what is it you're you're mm. asking for? But I think the key thing is as well, if you have a large private practice, is to make sure that you keep your indemnifier when it comes to renewal uh, up to date on the extent of your private practice. I mean, you know, there may be some people who only do one session in the NHS. Mm. And actually, the remainder of their working week is all private. Well, the premium that you're charged by your indemnifier will be reflective of the fact that the majority of your work is of your working life is spent doing private work. Obviously, you're seeing more patients on a private capacity. The risk to your private indemnifier increases. So that's why it's important. Does does the legal system view errors made in the private sector any differently to those made in the NHS? Do you, do you think that we're, we're more exposed if something happens in private practice? Uh, it's not legally, it's not viewed any different. Uh, the test is exactly the same, whatever the setting. So I think that's fine. You know, I appreciate some people may say, well, the resources and um, challenges in the NHS may be far greater, it's much more difficult, etc. Yes, that may come into play, but ultimately the standard and the test is exactly the same. But they could but the context could be used to argue either way, essentially. To paint you in a negative light in the press, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean for from the point of view of how you're portrayed in the press, that's just, you know, um the free for all. Believe me, and I, I've seen it sadly. Um, you know that there are good news stories don't really make the news, so yeah, they're, course, they're not yeah, going to yeah. put you in mm. the in the news uh, or waste column inches on you unless they can really get an angle. So I'd, I'd, apart from commenting <laughs> on the press, I've said enough. But um, no, from a legal perspective, the standard is the same, and that's the key mm. thing. Right, interesting. And do um, are things like um, work pressures and um, stress and workload taken into account when you're defending a case? And does the judge take that into account when they're ultimately deciding? Um, if I was honest, I, I'm afraid not, the answer is no. Mm. Um, you know, ultimately, patients and their representatives appreciate the reason why. A mistake may have been made. You know, there may be there's obviously human error there. There may be systems failures due to resourcing issues. There may be environmental factors. There's a whole range of factors why mistakes happen. Um, 
ultimately in awarding compensation, if a mistake happens, it happens and the patient would need to be compensated mm. uh, if it was a negligent mistake. And whatever other factors, however much sympathy there may be for the clinicians and the individuals involved, it's not a factor that I would say con constitutes okay. defence in any way. I mean, you know, it can be thrown into the mix to show why something wasn't negligent. And they are all factors that an expert may take into account when providing their opinion, but it wouldn't necessarily mean that you're not negligent. Um, there, I mean, I, I mentioned about the systems failures. Um, some years ago, there was a series of cases around vincristine errors. And the expert who was involved in analysing those cases in the criminal prosecution shortly before the appeal was provided further information by the police. And on the basis of that additional documentation he'd been provided said, actually, what this has now shown me is that it wasn't the fault of the doctor who administered the injection incorrectly. They just happened to be the last point in the chain of tragic events that had happened. There's a whole series of other failures behind, for example, incorrect labeling or it, the you know, solutions have been put in the wrong cupboard, et cetera, et cetera. And those are factors that will come into play um, from a criminal prosecution or mm. for the purposes of a regulatory or disciplinary hearing, all of that will be taken into account. From a claims perspective, lesser. And how does, um, obviously it'll be a different threshold, different severity of error, but um, you talk about sort of criminal cases versus just um, claims cases. Are they all criminal cases or, or do some cross over that threshold into being a criminal? No, they're, they're very, very, so they're very different. And I think um, it's really important that everyone understands this. The majority of cases that you see reported in the newspapers that are I deal with, they are civil claims. To prove a civil a civil claim is only, it's really important, only a claim for compensation. There are no criminal penalties associated with it. And if a claimant succeeds in their claim for compensation, it doesn't mean that the clinician will be reported to oh, wow. their regulator in any way that's entirely separate so you if you can picture there's your tranche of civil claims for compensation the standard of proof there is on the balance of probabilities so 51 percent mm. is all you need to establish criminal is entirely separate and the standard of proof is very different right. the, the criminal standard of proof is beyond reasonable doubt yeah, very different to balance of probabilities. So there you've got your criminal tranche of cases, and they are very few and far between those criminal cases. Um, then you have inquest claims. The purpose of inquest cases is to you know, understand from a factual perspective what has happened, who died, where they died, and most importantly, how they died. Again, unconnected to civil claims, unconnected to criminal claims, just because you have 
an inquest, it doesn't mean necessarily that a civil claim for compensation will follow or that the Crown Prosecution Service on behalf of the Crown will bring criminal proceedings, completely different. And then finally, there's regulatory proceedings. And for those to happen, someone has to complain about the health professional involved and say, this is why I want to complain about them. And then the regulator will investigate that case um, and proceed from there. Mm. So they're all entirely separate. Mm. How is the compensation amount calculated? Is there a, f- a formula you use? It's different for every injury. It really depends upon the severity of the injury. So when you see compensation awards uh, reported in the newspapers, they may be into millions, they may be tens of thousands or just thousands. It depends upon the level of the injury. So you get a certain proportion of of that award for the injury itself, uh, for the pain, suffering, loss of amenity, that the patient may have as a result of their injury. So then, you know, whether that's the loss of a finger or something relatively small compared to brain damage, uh, mm-hmm. at birth or brain damage due to mm. an anesthetic instance, whatever it is. Um, in that, in the latter case, in the brain damage case, you know, the award for the pain, suffering, loss of amenity could well be in the most severe cases 250 300,000 for that element alone mm. the award for a short smaller injury may run into 5000 10000 pounds there are some guidelines that are issued around the awards for pain suffering loss of amenity and the different types of injuries and lawyers look at those guidelines but also previous case law and awards that the courts have made in assessing those damages but then the majority Mm. when you look at the very large awards there is also then special damages and special damages cover everything that can be quantified it may include an award for loss of earnings or most often the very large awards a large part of it will be in relation to care and looking after someone who's been left brain damaged and the care mm. costs associated with it. There may be a claim for accommodation or aids and equipment, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what tends to form a large part of these very high awards. I remember when, uh, well, it was going back a few years, there was I, I happened to be sent some information from a, from a law firm that was representing a hospital. I'd just been an F1 on a ward round doing the you know the, the scribing on the on the ward round but they'd contacted me and they sent through all the all the information about the case and I, I was amazed at how itemized the claim was there was things on there for like having to pay for car washing instead of being able to do it themselves hmm. yeah having to pay yeah. to um get someone to assemble furniture because they won't be able to do it themselves anymore yeah so it was it was really even like uh the cost of hospital parking for increased appointments at Gosh. the hospital it was it, everything was there itemized yeah and uh, it's important to say as well in that sort of situation jane what you're seeing there um is the claimant's best case schedule okay mm. uh, so that's them thinking of everything they can possibly think we, we see claims for everything from i can no longer walk my dog i can't you know i can't do 
clean the windows that I used to always clean, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, that, that can include absolutely anything and everything that the claimant quite reasonably fe feels they have lost. And it's important to bear in mind as well, when it gets to formal court pleadings, the claimant has to sign that schedule of loss saying, these are the losses I have incurred, my past losses, and I'm likely to incur in the future. And they sign that schedule. And that may be, you know, significantly more than the award or the offer that is made to settle the claim. Mm -hmm. So that isn't necessarily what they will get. That is just what they believe on a best case scenario. But you're right. Uh, they can be very, very particular and provide a large element of mm. detail. I think you've mentioned that society is becoming more litigious, or at least you've um, over the years you've seen more litigation in healthcare. Um, so, do you see sort of cases of overzealous litigation? Do you see not infrequently good, um, safe doctors having claims put made against them? Um, like if we do everything right and keep keep our heads down throughout our careers, is it still inevitable that we're going to have claims brought against us? Um, I wouldn't say it's inevitable, but you know, there but for the grace of God, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's difficult. There are many factors around why society becomes more litigious in economic downturns. You know, it's not surprising. Sometimes this can happen. You can see an increase in the amount of litigation. Some people said, uh, if you remember, there used to be on daytime television many adverts around no win no fee you know it doesn't cost yeah. you anything <laughs> bring them bring your case Plus what have you got box. to lose so all of those factors i'm afraid yeah. had some level of impact in society becoming more litigious we live in a rights-based culture everyone will feel that you know if something goes wrong wrong then maybe someone is to blame uh, it's it's very hard, but equally, when things have gone wrong, quite rightly, people are entitled to compensation to correct those as best as they can. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, keep your head down. I, I think mm. just do your best like you do every day when you go to work and, <laughs> and hopefully that'll be fine. But at the end of the day, I suppose the reassurance I would give to any clinician is to say that to succeed in a claim, a claimant has to show that the care fell below the standard of care to be expected. And they have an expert has to support that claimant's case. So, mm. you know, that's really what it comes down to. Mm. So you've, you've written about candor in medicine. Um, given that the errors are inherent to radiology, to what extent do you think radiologists should be informing patients about every miss that could have caused harm, even if ultimately it didn't lead to any? Uh, that's, so there, there is a duty of candor, and I think when things have gone wrong, it's important to speak to the, the legal team or you know, who support you if you're in any way unsure. Um, but it's being about, about being transparent and open with the patient and explaining what the harm is and, and what's happened. But ultimately, it's important to appreciate as well, you're not giving an expert opinion and you can only, you know, tell someone uh, what's been missed based on what you did and what you know. Mm. Brilliant, yeah. 
Um, well, I think um, that's basically covered everything we wanted to ask, really. Um, it's been really, really informative. I've, I've learned a lot, actually. Yeah, been definitely. Since you, you explained it very clearly. So, um, yeah, thank you for that. Um, Jamie, do you feel more or less anxious after that? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I feel a bit more anxious. I, I think perhaps <laughs> I've pitched it about right. I think... I think so, actually. Yeah, you seem <laughs> you do need to, And I think I'm a bit too... Um, yeah, I, I think I need Maybe to... Maybe your appetite for risk is, is greater than mine. <laughs> I, I feel like this is an episode of Crime Watch. Maybe I should say at the end of this. <laughs> don't have nightmares. Remember what I said at the beginning. This is still, thankfully, a very rare event. Um, and hopefully you will never have to meet me professionally. <laughs> I want to defend you, but I, you know, that's what we're here for. We're here to support you and assist you in the unfortunate event that it happens. And if it happens, it doesn't in any way mean that someone is, you know, a bad doctor or a negligent doctor. It's just, it just people make mistakes. As I said, my mistakes, um, you know, don't involve human lives. So it's, one of those things but hopefully it won't happen to you great thanks very much thank you for listening guys been a pleasure we'll be back next month with another episode uh, in the meantime you can catch all of our previous episodes on all the usual podcast platforms and at anchor.fm forward slash radcast and for more updates in the meantime check out our social media channels so that's at radcast academy on twitter and instagram bye goodbye